Thanks for listening to the Q&A podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Hello and uh, welcome back to the Q&A podcast. Uh, my name is Matt Deason. I'm here uh, once again with Matt Karsh. Say hi. Hello. Um, we um, have kind of some heavy questions to uh, wrestle with today. We got a, a number of different questions uh, about uh, violence in the Old Testament. And some of the questions you texted in were as simple as, uh, hey, why is the Old Testament so violent? Uh, but other questions were more pointed, asking about uh, specific uh, instances of um, violence that we see. And there, admittedly, there's kind of a lot of that in the Old Testament. So we wanted to take, uh, I imagine it'll take us the entire episode just to tackle this one topic of uh, violence in the Old Testament. And uh, I think it's something that we kind of approach with humility and with care, um, because we do realize that this is a topic that uh, for some people is a deal breaker. For some people, it, they literally walk away from their faith because um, they can't reconcile kind of the um the what appears to be the angry violent god of the old testament with uh, the faith that they uh profess and uh, of course if you open up a book um you, you know by richard dawkins or one of these kind of new atheists uh, that's something that they'll harp on they'll say hey why you know are we believing in the god of the bible when he is ordering genocide uh, in the Old Testament and, and wiping people out. And isn't this archaic and backwards? And we just don't need this in, in the modern day. So kind of encouraging people to just um, harp on that, but then to, to throw out their faith completely. And so um, we do feel that this is, I mean, we can just start right off the bat by saying that this is uh, a sobering topic, uh, that I'll say it's not a simple topic by any means. I'd say it's rather complex. It's certainly challenging for us, uh, but we are going to kind of step in and just uh, attempt to tackle this and uh, hopefully come away with something that's uh, a little bit deeper, a little bit more thought-provoking than the typical um, glance that we give it, uh, or the typical rejection, you know, of, of the, the new age atheist, uh, nowadays. But, um, even within the church, uh, for people who have been following Jesus, I mean, I would say to some degree, this is something that people have been, uh, discussing or even struggling with for millennia now, uh, within the church of what do you do with, the violence of the Old Testament. Uh, what do you do with these uh, stories and, and sort of this uh, more violent portrait that we get of God and his activity in the Old Testament? And then you open the New Testament and you have Jesus. And uh, he's kind, he's loving, he's forgiving. Uh, he tells us to love our enemies. He dies on a cross for us. And, and so in our minds, we kind of feel this uh, disconnect. Uh, but uh, Matt, I don't know if you have any initial thoughts, but I think we should... Well, I guess my initial thought is to say that um, that that confusion and that uh, that sense of uh, what I'm going to say is a false dichotomy, that's actually something that the church has wrestled with for 
millennia. So the Marcionite heresy, one of the early heresies in the church, is actually describing two different gods. One god of the Old Testament who's kind of this tyrant, who's angry, who does what we see as morally reprehensible things. And that god is different than the god of the New Testament who comes in Jesus. And whether we like it or not, that sort of attitude actually does um, still exist in churches today and even sometimes can be expressed in our presentations of the gospel as if Jesus' death on the cross saves us from the angry father. So Jesus is kind of like this hippie, nice guy who comes and dies on a cross to save us from the angry father, um, which is not the, the story of the gospel as we uh, share here. But that sentiment is still very, very common and uh, heresies don't die easily. So I'm not saying that everyone who's ever asked this question is a heretic. That's not what I mean to start out with. Uh, but just to say that this is a question um, that has been p asked for, for thousands of years. And I think for right, right reasons, um, we, we as the people of Jesus who've been taught to love our neighbor as ourselves, to pray for those who persecute you, we look at the martyrs in the New Testament and throughout church history, and we look at people who take the path of nonviolence, and then we read about Israel invading the land and killing every man, woman, and child when they do it. Uh, seems, well, confusing to say the least and problematic um, on the other end of the spectrum. So we'll yeah, start there so and... So it's an issue. I mean, this is a this is a, a big issue. We got enough questions on it that clearly there are people within our community that are wrestling with it. There have been people throughout the millennia who have wrestled yeah. with it. Um, and even if you're listening and it's not your issue, it's uh, someone it, else. It's somebody's issue, yeah. like somebody who's close to you or your neighbor or whoever it is. Uh, it's just a really common kind of stumbling block for people. And so as you open up the scriptures, you know, you start off like, oh, chapter one, chapter two in, in the Bible, everything looks awesome. God looks awesome. Uh, and then it's not too many chapters before you have uh, a global flood, uh, which is 99.9% .9 of uh, humanity being wiped out uh, in, in, a, in a decisive- well, I don't think people, I don't know if generally people, people don't, when I hear the conversation, I don't hear people get mad about Genesis 6 and the universal flood. That people is really almost give that, take that for granted. Like, okay, I see why God had to do that. Well, do you think we've really thought through it though? No. I mean, like when we, we like teach it in our kids' class. Yeah. You know, it's like this when, common like, oh, that's a great Sunday right, school. Right, in Sunday school like, we think of, oh, it's two animals. How could they get two right. animals on the ship? Ah, it's confusing. But we don't think about the idea that inherently the act is an act of judgment on sin. Yes. Which is what we'll come back to. And a, and a ton of people died. Yeah. That was an act of God that killed a ton of people. Yeah. Um, but when even when you move on from that, you have uh, God in the Exodus. So it's kind of God versus the Egyptian gods and mm -hmm. Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. Mm -hmm. uh, a ton of uh, Egyptians die in that. Then Israel's freed. But then you get what I think ends up being... Uh, well, you, you get, even before they get into the promised land, you get a little bit of Israel versus Israel, which is one of the questions that was texted. Well, don't call it Israel versus Israel. They're all Israelites. Yeah, but it's not as if this is internal conflict. Where well, no, no, no. Why don't you read the question? Why, why don't you read the question? Okay. Let's just start with there. So um, one of the questions that we got, uh, just quote, or it cites Exodus 32, 25 to 29, which I'm assuming we'll read. It says, what, how could God command his people to kill his people? 
Great question. Exodus 32 is one of the, I don't know, this foundational chronic cornerstone sort of places in the story of the Exodus and the story of the foundation of the nation of Israel and that we really have to understand. And it's a good question. So, I mean, just a, a brief picture and background, what's going on right beforehand. Moses is getting the law on Mount Sinai. The nation of Israel says, yes, we'll obey those things. Moses is then on the mountain and he's on the mountain long enough that the nation of Israel is, um, well, they get mad. They go, where is this guy, Moses? And so Aaron, who's, who's Moses' brother, he's the priest. They go, Aaron, we can't wait any longer. Make us a God that we can worship. And that's what happens in Exodus 32. The phrase, holy cow, comes from this. Yes, because what a they famous do, golden calf. They make a golden calf. And so they fashion, they actually do. So they just agreed to follow what God had told them to do. And what was the very first thing that God told them to do? Worship him alone. Yeah, have no other gods before me. Okay, and they're also not supposed to make an image of him. But what do they do? They make an image of him and they worship it. And the language in the text, um, can you read it? And even starting with the, not just 25, but start with like the description of what they do in front of the calf. Because the language is veiled, but the idea is that they commit sinful acts in their worship of this cow god that they make to be Yahweh. Oh, yeah. Um Okay, so it says, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets oh, right out of well, his hands. Even earlier than that? Well, right before that. The dancing alludes to it, but it's this idea that they... It sounds, sounds like more like an orgy or something. Yeah, no, that's the, yeah. that's the imagery. But there's it more explicit. I'll find it, but you can read it. Oh, yeah. So Moses comes down, he's angry, uh, and he said to Aaron, hey, what did these people do to you? Uh, that you let them into such great sin. Aaron responds, hey, don't be angry. You know uh, how prone these people are to evil. Uh, there's this big conflict. And um, ultimately, there are uh, 3,000 people that that die. Is that what we're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... It says, so uh, th then he said to them, hey, this is, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel s says. Uh, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. Well, yeah, uh, but right before Levites that, it's did. crucial. Okay, yeah. so here's, here's the picture of what's going on. Uh, verse seven is what I was referencing. Um, they, so, or verse six, so, um, they make the golden calf. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The idea is it's like a big, big orgy. What they're doing is they're worshiping this golden calf as if it was Asherah or Molech or any of the other, or Dagon, any of the other na ancient Near Eastern gods. And that's what you would do. You would do, you would buy a temple prostitute and that's how you would worship those gods. And so that, that's what they're doing. They're committing pretty bad sins, what they're doing. And then you get down Moses comes down. Hey, what's going on? Uh, they built the golden calf. Aaron says, blah, blah, blah. Verse 25, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. So, and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. So he, that's Moses, stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. So Moses gives an opportunity for repentance. And Moses points out, hey, what's going on is wrong. 
and then essentially says, hey, whoever's with the Lord, come to me. Not everyone comes to him. Uh, and then there's a judgment on Israel for their sin. And it's not as if they don't know what's going on. They literally, the passage right beforehand talks about how they all agreed to follow the ways of the Lord. And then they Im- immediately do this and God judges their sin. That in short is what's going on. Now we can take qualms with, with God's methods. Uh, it, it seems very harsh and uh, well, it just seems harsh to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and if we, so there was a specific question about that instance, but if yes. we zoom out again, we kind of have, if you're reading through, you've got the story of the flood, you've got kind of God bringing judgment on Egypt. Um, then you have th- this internal strife within Israel when they're in the desert. So there's Israelites killing Israelites those who are for the Lord and those who are now in rebellion against him. Mm -hmm. You get even further to the scriptures and the next generation of Israelites is entering the promised land. And I think that the Israelites in the promised land is typically where you get the most questions and kind of the most hangups because it sounds like God's telling them to go into the land of Canaan, this promised land and just wipe everybody out. Just commit genocide against these innocent people who never did anything. Right. They're just hanging out, you know, doing farming and, and whatever. Right. And now this foreign people's coming in and they're commanded to kill every man, woman, and, and child. In so many ways, uh, huh, I'm just thinking about it right now, but in so many ways, the, the American church has brought this on ourselves because what often happened when uh, European settlers came to, to North America was we used this language of conquest like Israel entering the promised land, except we white Europeans saw ourselves as that. And what did we do? Well, we, we wiped out innocent people who weren't really doing anything wrong. Right. Well, I think that's, I think that's why the question is so heated right. is because you're kind of asking the bigger question of is God sanctioning violence? And if so, aren't there going to be other people who say we're God's people or we're God's nation. So surely we should do what Israel did. Right. And I think that's the fear. Even if yeah. you say, Oh, it was, it was violent, but we know it was only for Israel and only for a time and only in this one place, you still have questions. But I think the most alarming thing is when you see it and you think, well, what if people extrapolate this out into principles yeah. that, that we can now live by, which yeah. is, that's like all the alarm bells are. So, I th- and I think you started to touch on something that's really crucial. And um, we have to understand that what well, exactly what you said, that the conquest, so Israel entering the promised land, which is, a promise given to Abraham and his descendants, that line is a specific time and place for a specific people that has an end on it. It's not for anybody to take up this idea that, hey, we, we can become a new Israel and can, can kill off other tribes because we think that God has spoken to us in this way. It's, it is very specific. It is constrained to a time and a place and a people and that is crucial to understand. And I think you're right. The, the reason that it's such an um, emotional and, and, and it, we, we get scared so quickly is because many of us have seen other people pick up that idea. And I've seen it, you know, in the circles right. that I've interacted with through totally. various things that I do, whether in chaplaincy, the military in general, or just being, I was a history major. And so you read about people right. using this as justification for. Totally conquest and enslaving people and all that stuff. 
Yeah. So, so, so why don't we start by, we've just kind of started by saying, Hey, no matter how you interpret it, we're, the, the very first thing you got to get on the table is this was something that happened in a specific time and place for specific people. Yes. And even for Israel, it's this entering the land, this is going to happen. But after that, you're to be at peace with everybody, like be at peace with all the nations around you and be this kingdom of priests in the holy nation. So we'll start by by kind of limiting it in a sense to this specific context. Let's talk a little bit more about that context okay. of, um, well, I think we should focus in on conquering the, the land, yeah. but obviously as we do, we'll probably hit on some things that are applicable to other violence questions. Well, so in order to kind of frame the context in my mind, you have to go back to Genesis 15. Um, which is Abraham. Which is Abraham. And so God in talking to Abraham God reiterates the promise to Abraham, you're going to have the descendants, descendants are going to have a land. But interestingly, it doesn't happen right away. Here's what happens in Genesis 15, verse 16. God says to Abraham, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure or um, uh, other and other translations, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there's this sense in which God speaking to Abraham. And you'd think that like Abraham would, would take possession of the land or maybe right. his grandchildren would right. be ready to enter the land. And, th- and God's saying, actually, it's not going to be until gonna, there's going to be a 400 year gap right. between like your grandkids and great grandkids and actual inheritance. But why? Why a 400 year gap where they are just waiting in slavery in Egypt? What's going on in the land? And you're saying what's going on there is really important. Right. And that phrase, the sin of the Amorites has not yet been completed or hasn't yet reached its full measure is so crucial to this understanding. The Amorites, who are the Amorites? Well, the Amorites are one of the tribes of people who live in the land. The Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Amorites. I always think of the left and rights, you know, you just think of anything that ends in ites. <laughs> right. And that's included in that yeah. list that you read through in the story of Joshua and then in the judges of who Israel is fighting against. But the Amorites, they seem to stand for this group of... They're representative of the promised land tribes. Right. These people who live in the land that Abraham has been promised, God is going to give this land to Abraham, but why can't Abraham have it right now? Well, because the Amorites have not yet fully completed their sin. God's waiting for something. God is actually in his mercy and patience waiting for the sin of the Amorites to be complete or to reach its full measure. So again, I'm going to come back to this idea of judgment on sin. Right. What it seems like God's doing is God is waiting to then execute judgment on sin. Right. So in theory, the the Amorites, the Canaanites, all these people in the promised land uh, have this opportunity. I mean, God's speaking to them, yeah. he's speaking into their culture yeah. and calling them to himself. That's what he's doing with everyone. Well, on, think of where Earth. Abraham came from. Abraham came from Ur the Chaldeans. Totally. And so in a sense, God's saying, hey, I'm continuing to extend grace. The people of God are actually going to suffer while I extend grace to, to the people who are currently in the promised land. Yep. They're going to have, and not just years, we're talking centuries, yes. centuries of them getting darker and darker and darker while God's saying, you need to repent and come back to me. And it doesn't even his, it, and maybe we'll get there, but 
it's not as even if it's, okay, once 400 years is up, then God said, okay, that is your last chance. You're all going to die. That's not even what happens because when we read through the story of the conquest, we see time after time of these examples of people who live in the land, who recognize what's going on, who then join Israel. Totally. So it's still, there's 400 years of grace followed by almost one last chance. It's like, okay, the okay. army's at the door and in the, in Would the you like Jericho, to come back they're to the literally community. walking around the city for days, right? giving people an opportunity. Right. If you want to repent, if you want to come back. And there are people, who do? tribes within, individuals and tribes yes. within the promised land who say, yes, we want to follow the creator God. And they come back and and that's cool. Like yeah. God, God welcomes them back. God even ends up using that line of people to bring about the Messiah, which kind is a rabbit trail, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But it helps create more of this picture of grace because we get hung up on this moment of like, wow, God's ordering genocide on an innocent people. We have to kind of tune into the story and mm-hmm. experience of, of all the ites, the Amorites yes. and all these other people. Yeah, and think, we can just call them all the ites. And think, what are they experiencing what is God doing? I mean, I consider myself a patient and graceful person. 400 years and you get, okay, but you got 400 years where these people are actually in a ton of darkness and you, and you get glimpses of like their um, sexual practices, yep. their child they're, sacrifice. They're, yep. um, it's really, it's really dark, heavy stuff. And so, Hittites, it's almost Gershites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites. Okay, Jesus. yes, that is that's great. But it's almost in my mind kind of reminiscent of the flood, where like there's a couple centuries of grace, but eventually like enough is enough, like you're you're going to be judged. Well, and, so, and it's in line with God's character, right? Compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding love and faithfulness. It's like slow to anger. Oh, totally. That's really slow. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think that's one strand that we have to recapture. What is the experience of the Amorites? If you were an Amorite for, you know, yeah. or were, got to watch them for those 400, 500 years, what would you have thought or experienced? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there's, and I, and, and I can't remember the site, but God actually says at one point to Israel, hey, this actually isn't about you. It's not because you're like a great and righteous people yep. that I'm expelling them from the land. It actually is about them. It's actually about them, their sin, their rebellion, mm-hmm. their rejection of me. Um, and so don't get all like high and mighty thinking this is about you. It's actually what I'm up to. And you guys, I, I think there's, there's Israel's almost these like spectators or parti- like sometimes even passive participants and just watching what God's doing. Um, but you, you got to recapture the story of the, the people of the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's also a strand uh, that needs to be highlighted of just the importance of not only the heaviness of, of sin and the reality of judgment, but really the importance of God's redemption plan and and keeping israel like israel is the avenue by which the messiah will come yes and so there it is really important so god's they, grace towards israel it gets captured i mean maybe this is passage you're referencing in deuteronomy 7 the lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples but it was because the lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors it's because of this promise that was given to abraham that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Yeah. And God's so, just faithful to his promise. Right. He's faithful to his promise. He, he, after centuries of grace, he is bringing judgment. And then there's, there's also this element of, I, I can't help but see the importance of Israel 
being Israel uh, as the means by which, you know, the Abrahamic covenant and Jesus will ultimately be fulfilled. And one of the things that God says is, hey, these people are going to be a snare for you. Like if you're not careful, they're going to completely undermine who you are and what it is that you're here to do. And so I think that's this other theme and it, and it happens time and time again yeah. where they, they are completely taken in by these other cultures well, and, like and their forms of worship and all of that. that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And then the, the last thing there, there's more to share, but one other thing I think worth is worth throwing out there is that we get very emotional about the gen, the sort of what sounds like genocidal language mm-hmm. of, Hey, every man, woman, and child, we totally destroyed them. There wasn't one survivor left. Yep. Uh, and we have to recognize that a lot of that is rooted in um, more of like ancient literature yes. than how we would think of objective reality. Well, even, I mean, if you just read through the stories of the old Testament, you read about how this one place was totally destroyed, but then maybe chapters later, there's people there. Totally. To go, wait, oh, there's contradictions. Oh, right, right, right. But that's not what's going on there. Right, it's more hyperbole than, than this sort of literal statement yeah, about what Yeah, it's like happens. saying we totally dominate, like my football team totally dominated them. Oh, right. Well, you won by seven points. That's not totally dominated. Totally, yeah, it wasn't 50 to zero. Yeah. But you know how, you know, the, you like to pump your chest a little yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. And just, and so there is some of that where, where, there's like this, hey, go wipe out this people. Don't leave anybody. Hey, we went and wiped out these people. We didn't leave anybody. And then the next thing is like, hey, don't intermarry with them. Right. You're like, intermarry with who? Like the people. I thought you just said you wiped out all of right. those people. What is um, and, and time and time again, that happens in scripture. So what's actually playing out on the ground. I'm trying to think uh, of some, some is, good books to recommend in terms of that. Um, in terms of the language specifically? Or yeah, just yeah, yeah. Well, Preston Sprinkle brings it up in um, one of his books. Maybe we can recommend some books at the fight. end. Fight. Oh, Fight. That's so, cool. Fight is a, is a, the subtitle is A Christian Case for Nonviolence. But in Fight, he actually talks about that a lot. Um, Josh Butler is a guy uh, in Portland. Uh, Skeletons in God's Closet is another good one that really deals with violence in the old testament and, and talks about some of that language piece too right okay so we've we've laid some groundwork uh this was a specific moment in israel's history uh it wasn't sort of universal for israel it's certainly not universal for humanity uh, it has a lot to do with the people in the land and and the story god's writing with them and uh, kind of their opportunity to repent and come back um, and there's all of these other sort of strands, uh, that we kind of have to incorporate in. There's a lot of hyperbole when we think genocide, they're thinking, no, we just like won the battle and they all ran away. And, but in our minds, we totally dominated. Right. No one was left on the battlefield sort of a thing. And in my mind, so for me, when I, when I think about it and I read through it and, and, and having this discussion, it really, it comes back to judgment on sin. So Genesis 15, 16, there's this sense in which God is going to judge the sin of the Amorites, Jebusites, Hittites, all the ites, and he's doing it for good cause. And we actually, we believe that, that God's doing it for good cause. If you read the historical accounts of what's going on, these child sacrifice, temple prostitution, you have like just uh, the slavery, the, the sorts of slavery and practices um, they're it, not. There's, like, there's almost the sense in which, like, if you could watch on a videotape what was taking place, 
you would be crying out to end it. Yeah. Right. You'd yeah. Be like this is wrong. This right. is injustice. Like you, you would get complaints on both sides. Right. You get complaints of like, well, why would you ever uproot these people? And you'd get complaints on the other side of like, God, why'd you wait 400 years? Right. You know, like give them two or three and just wipe them out. Right. So, so it, it all comes back to judgment on sin. So if we can understand that there is sin there to be judged, what God does time and time again is God use human actors who either knowingly or unknowingly participate with him for judgment on sin. So if you think then all the way back to, to uh, Genesis 6 and the flood, it's judgment on sin. If you think to Exodus 32, when the people worship the golden calf, it's judgment on sin. If you think about the conquest of the land, it's judgment on sin. And it's not as if Israel gets off the hook. It's not as if God is really all about this nation Israel and wants to protect them at all costs, totally. even no matter what they do. Leviticus 20, 22, and this kind of phrase gets brought up all the time, but this idea is keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out, okay? Right. Be obedient to what you have agreed to. We've, we've made a covenant together. Be ob- hold up your end of the bargain so that the land won't vomit you out. Well, what happens? They're unfaithful to their end of the covenant and the land vomits them out. Yes. God brings the same judgment on sin that he did to the ites. He does that to the nation of Israel. Right. And so Israel goes into exile in Babylon and, and then literally everyone's asking, well, how could this happen? And the prophets are like, Wait, uh, where were you the last <laughs> couple thousand years? This is how it works. <laughs> this is, uh, God was pretty clear about it. Right. And God just keeps judging sin using human actors who either knowingly or unknowingly participate with him in that process. From a New Testament perspective, and this is probably where we would deviate as far as how this plays out in modern world today, but this seems to be Paul's argument in Romans 13 about how God uses specific human actors to judge sin or restrain sin, even in our world where Jesus has come and died on a cross and the Holy Spirit has been out on those who follow after him in faith but i think that'll get us i think that'll get that'll us get distracted topic because yeah. yeah we'll end up but i'm like just saying it's a it's a it's a con, it's a cohesive thread this idea that god does judge sin all right well in the in the old testament it's explicit it just says like clearly god's doing something with israel raising them up and using them to judge the amorites but then he specifically says it the bible tells us god stirred up babylon yes. to come and bring judgment yes. on israel and didn't show them this special favorite it's this tension between like you're humans you're doing the same thing he, god actually says you're doing the you're, same you're thing being just like sodom and gomorrah you're just like the amorites yes and so now you're going to suffer the same fate and yet god's going to maintain his, his faithfulness to abraham and his line and his family he's going to fulfill his promises and yet there's also the sense in which like the israelites are, are hardly getting special treatment right and the problem is that when that we want to grab the principle out because we live in a in a us versus them world right and so if we can frame ourselves as the us we and, the and them as yeah. the them yeah well then we can do what israel did and you, you don't even finish the story you're like but look what happened to israel <laughs> like and yeah. and so i think that there's a lot there that's lacking but if we bring it all the way back to can i bring it all the way back to the beginning for sure. a moment because just to kind of reframe what if i said no what would you do i don't know i hadn't planned for that <laughs> <laughs> uh but it, to bring it all the way back to the beginning we're gonna feel this tension of you're reading through the first 75 percent of the bible called the old testament you see in god either directly or indirectly uh kind of involved in these acts of, of force and violence 
gods. And then you open the New Testament and you get Jesus. And, and Jesus says, hey, love your enemies. You know, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. If someone takes something from you, then can I just read this section from Sermon on the Mount? This is, this is Jesus' words. Yes, you can. Okay. This is Jesus' words to his followers. He says, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And so you read something like that, so, so radical. Um, and then you see Jesus not only say that, but actually live it out. Uh, he he doesn't act in violence against anyone. He goes willingly like uh, a lamb to the slaughter. He takes on uh, the evil of the world and, and lets it overcome him. And then you read that, hey, Jesus is, is the essence of God's character. He, he is um, the, the full and final revelation of God, this perfect reflection of the Father and not like a perfect reflection of the Father on a good day or like a perfect right. reflection right. of only the Father's kindness, he, he, Jesus says, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so you, you look at Jesus and he's so compelling. Um, and it says, well, that, that's God. That's God's character. He died for his enemies. Yes. And so then you're, you're going to end up going back and holding the two intention. Well, is that the same God who then... Uh, ends up getting mixed up in, in all of this violence. And so I think our, our reaction to that, one, some of us reject everything. We just say, I'm done with this. I'm done with the Bible. I'm done with my faith. I'll walk away. Uh, others of us kind of reject the Old Testament yeah. and just say like, I don't really know what to think of that or go so far as the, you know, the heresy you were talking about. Well, that was just a different God or something. Mm -hmm. uh, and then others of us say, well, there must be a way to, to reconcile these. Um, and so one way to reconcile them is to say, well, sin is serious. Uh, God has a right to judge. Uh, we see him judging in the past in the Old Testament. Uh, we see him judging in the future mm -hmm. um, and at the end of the age. And hey, all of life is, is from God. It's all his. It's all on loan from him. He can, he can do what he wants with that. And that's basically the route that we would take. Uh, we would say this is one God, one story, one Jesus, and that he's out to redeem and rescue humanity from its sin. Uh, the wages of sin it's, is death. It's really dark. It's really heavy. Uh, the natural effect is death. The default judgment is death. And both the Old and New Testaments uniformly treat sin as being a really big deal. Uh, in fact, it's such a big deal that the Son of God has to come and die in order to rescue us from our sin. Mm.
Yes. Any other thoughts on that or? Um, I mean, I would say in the, I think part of the problem is that in our modern age, we really don't treat sin like it's a big deal. Yeah. Like just speaking for me and people I know, it's just kind of grow up in this, in this sort of secular age where, well, I guess sin exists, but it's not really a big deal. Well, and And even, I I mean, I don't think that's purely a secular thing. That's not, I, I, it's something that, that those of us inside the church or those who've lived inside the church for a long time, or even if you just read about what happens in churches, um, that's the case inside and outside the four walls of the church. That's not a uniquely, oh, because we live in a post-Christian society, people don't care about sin anymore. I think it's in general, um, we don't understand because we don't comprehend what sin is and what it does and, and why God needs to deal with it. And so... Right, and I think recapturing that actually helps bring some of these stories into focus because the sin-death connection, I think, is really consistent through all of these stories. It's through the fall with Adam and Eve, through the flood, through the exodus, through uh, the Israelites in the desert and that weird story that we read earlier, through the conquering of the land, that that kind of sin-darkness-death connection. uh, They're all very much connected, and so... Um, and, and like we mentioned at the start, a lot of people don't have problems assuming that basic connection. Yeah. And I think the other, the other important thing to remember is that it's not some arbitrary decision that God makes, which is like, well, I don't like this list of 10 things. And so I'm just going to punish people who do those 10 things. It's not as if God has came up with this arbitrary list. What we actually have to understand is that God as the creator and designer of our lives and of all of creation, in fact, when he judges sin, it's actually the best thing for us. Now, if we can believe that, that God is good and God's judgment on sin is good, and that when he judges sin, it's the best thing for humans and humanity, that totally reshapes the picture. It's not just this arbitrary, powerful deity out there who gets mad at us when we do do the wrong thing or do the right thing, but in the wrong way. That's not, that's not the picture that we get either of law or sin or judgment or the way that God relates to his creation. It's that God has a design and he gives clear directions to his people on how to live according to the way that we're designed. But we often reject that and essentially stick our middle fingers up at God. And the, the most loving thing that he can do is deal with that sin. Now, sometimes he does that in these like really direct violent ways other times it's more almost more passive um he he gives us over to our sin over to suffer in our own sin yeah Yeah. but there's actually mercy in in like divine judgment right and calling and calling just saying yeah, yeah exactly yeah yeah and and i think that we don't for the most part it's hard to speak for everyone but for the most part we don't really have a problem with god judging sin through water in the flood. Right. Uh, even though it's shocking, we don't really throw fits over that or have debates over that. Uh, I think the stickier topic that was raised by some of the questions that were sent in is uh, these instances, the really hot button issue is when God is using people who are then acting violently against other people as a part of God's judgment on sin. So he can use water and it's really sobering, but we kind of get it. Uh, but when he uses people or specifically when he uses Israel, uh, we start to get uncomfortable with that uh, because it starts to feel like, oh, this is paralleling you know, genocide and unjust war 
and the oppressor uh, crushing the oppressed. And I hope part of what we've been able to do in this podcast is begin to color in some of the lines and show that, hey, the, the conquering of the land in Canaan, in my mind, it doesn't tick any of those boxes because we get uncomfortable. Oh, God's using people to you know, fight other people. And we automatically, in my mind, I just go to, well, this is the oppressor. This is the unjust war. This is the superpower invading a smaller nation. In reality... Well, and I think the reason that we get there is because this sort of language was picked up by oppressive, like... Oh, totally. Yeah. uh, Conquering nations through the last 400 years and then used in a parallel kind of way. And so we... I mean, rightfully upset by the use of that. Yes. We look back and say, well, Israel was kind of like that. But in in actuality, Israel is this oppressed nation who is slaves brought out of the superpower and then brought in to another place where they have to fight against people who have more people, more technology. Exactly. And who are these established um, civilizations that have set themselves up in opposition to God to come back to a point yes. earlier. Yeah. So this isn't when we read it and myself included, I think, Oh, well, this is uh, the strong, a strong people using God to sort of justify their conquest of the weak. Right. And we see, you do see that in history. And so I just assume, well, maybe Israel's doing the same thing. The reality is that it's God arising on behalf of the weak mm-hmm. against the tyranny of the strong, um, after centuries of, of the strong abusing their power. And so um, really, if you're going to take this as, as a mold or this pattern that you want to follow, you would end up being utterly ridiculous mm-hmm. if you actually tried to follow sort of this holy war um, pattern that, that Israel's in. If you actually put yourself in their shoes, uh, the, the picture ends up looking very different in my mind. And so um, I think it was Josh Butler who um, said who who tried to um write out the 10 steps to a biblical holy war Mm. like hey if you were going to if you if you thought that you were the new israel and that you were going to do the same thing they did he says there's 10 steps to get there says first you throw out your weapons Uh, second you burn all your tactical training books third you find cheap and ineffective weapons that aren't bound to work fourth you go down to your local rehab center and get some really bad leaders to put in charge of your military. Uh, fifth, you uh, hire a publicist to track all of your flaws and failures and broadcast them to the world. Uh, s- number six, you boast about how backwards you are to your enemies. Number seven, find the most powerful nation that you can. Number eight, pick a fight. Number nine, walk out to face them. And number 10, pray that God shows up. Um, and, and that kind of helps me in like actually entering the scene and thinking like this isn't this just doesn't fall in line with, you know, the Nazi regime or with the Americans and the way they related to Native Americans or like we just tend to fill in the blanks with these more recent cultural mm-hmm. uh, catastrophes when in reality uh, what God's doing is arising on behalf of, of the weak and helpless. And if God doesn't show up in any of this stuff, like they're toast. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think that really helps in, in understanding some of the context. And then just remembering um, some of the stuff we've said from the beginning that you can read some of the language about, hey, destroy, you know, every man, woman, and child. We utterly wipe them off the face of the map. And just remembering you're reading an ancient book with ancient warfare literature. And that oftentimes what they're describing is 
it, it says, you know, every man, woman, and child, but what it means is everyone. Everyone in that uh, city. Well, what's a city? Okay, well, that's a military installation or whatever. Okay, so what I'm really reading about is this free group of slaves being empowered by God to overcome a military installation called Jericho. Like, this isn't a city full of, like, women and children or whatever. And so when we actually get past some of our initial shock and dig into the cultural context, I think it changes a lot for me. I mean, God had to fight for them yeah. uh, in order for them to be successful. And it, and I mean, uh, Preston Sprinkle in Fight, and I think Josh Butler in his book does too, addresses, uh, we already talked about this, but, um, you know, those issues of the man, woman, and child and, and killing everyone. And I think it's, it's, again, when we read these stories and we're like aghast at what happened, that, that in and of itself is not a problem. We, we should realize that, yes, this is violent and, yes, this is like horrible that it has to happen. But that should also then color in our understanding of what judgment and sin, judgment on sin is all about and, and what God is doing through it. Right. Which leads us to yeah. probably another topic that we don't have time There's for. So much here, yeah. But probably we should do another podcast on, which is just the overall conversation around uh, violence and, and pacifism. Yeah. Because you and I haven't had a good argument on no, the podcast. No, we haven't. And if we do it now, we'll add another hour <laughs> to what's here. But I, I do think, I think it would be worth one more podcast exploring that and trying to... Wait, one more? Just one more? <laughs> I think we can do it in one. But just... No, but just I mean, there's only one more podcast? No, no, just on this topic. But I think it would be Do we be have more questions that we have to do now? We have more questions, but oh. I think it's worth one more on this topic exploring, hey, is, is God a pacifist? Is there any room for us as Christians to use force or violence? How should we as Christians think about force and violence? Um, was it sanctioned in the Old Testament and not the New? I think the, the questions that were sent in kind of touch on some of those bigger questions. And is it okay to disagree as Jesus-loving, oh Jesus-following Christians? I hope so, or else <laughs> one of us is not a Jesus-loving Christian. Uh, oh, there's your teaser, because we don't agree. Not always. Rarely. I mean, but Solo is a great Star Wars oh movie. Oh my gosh, do not <laughs> start. This is, you're going to start a holy war right now. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, um, I, think, I think that's enough. I think we've got it. I think we've talked about, touched on violence in the Old Testament. We talked about um, the, the weird instance with the Israelites being ordered to kill Israelites. We explored the conquering of the promised land. We'll do uh, one more episode on this topic, exploring um, kind of is God a pacifist? How are we to be as Christians? Uh, which will kind of build off of what we just Can I give about. homework before the next podcast? Sure. Read Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2. Yeah. Okay. I have not memorized that, but I will do it. And uh, we'll do another one of these. Okay. All right, Karsh. Appreciate you. Appreciate your thoughts, as always. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Q&A podcast. If you have questions you'd like answered, text in your question to 208-503-3865.